Hello and welcome, everybody. My name is Tim Scott. Welcome to the Peanut Gallery. I'm sitting across from my friend George Harder. I'm the one in the bow tie. Tim's the one in the stocking cap. For today, at least. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to talk about the great partnerships in musical theater history. When you think about musical theater teams, obviously, you immediately think of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Perhaps you think of Candor and Ebb. Uh, and then, of course, the solo pioneers of musical theater, Cole Porter, refused to work with anybody else, uh, famously remarked, why do you need another person to write musicals? But today we'd like to discuss the great partnerships in musical theater. Uh, and I think we'd like to use as our centerpiece, Candor and Ebb, who were the longest tenured writing team in Broadway history. Is that right, George? They first came together in 1964, and they worked together until Fred Ebb died in 2004. And uh, John Kander is still alive. Uh, I think he's in his early 90s. Is he 91? Uh, he, 92 maybe, born in 1927, 28. And even after Fred Ebb passed away in 2004, they still had two musicals that came out from material that they had written before his death, the Scottsboro Boys and Curtains. So Candor and Ebb, the, the great songwriting team, and really what we wanted to talk about is what makes a great duo um, and the collaborations that have gone wrong, what makes them successful and whatnot. And I know we're both really great fans of the songwriting team Adler and Ross, who really were going to set the bar for songwriting teams until, was it, Jerry Adler that died? No, it was Jerry Ross. Jerry Richard Ross Ad that Richard died. Richard Adler and Jerry Ross. He was 29 years old. He had a lung ailment of, uh, that plagued him all of his life. And uh, just a few months after Damn Yankees opened their second musical, uh, he passed away. And Richard Adler stayed in the music business, uh, I think, in publishing. Uh, he put together some, uh, uh, some television reviews, but never, never achieved the success that he had with Jerry Ross. Their secret was that they both wrote music and they both wrote lyrics. Whereas with Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers and music, Hammerstein the lyrics, Lerner and Lowe, Lerner the, the book and the lyrics, Lowe the music. But Adler and Ross, they both wrote music, they both wrote lyrics. Of course, Richard Adler went on to live, he just died in 2012, I believe. Yes. Their other famous musical, The Pajama Game. Pajama you talk Game. about The Pajama Game and Damn Yankees. And that was it. And both of these guys were in their... 20s at this 20s. point. Yeah, they were really set to kind of revolutionize musical theater in, in their own way. They brought a pop sensibility to musicals kind of for the first time. Uh, they infused a, a little bit of pre-rock and roll. This was 1953-1954 with the Pajama Game and Damn Yankees. And they were kind of showing off a little bit. In Pajama Game, there's all different kinds of, all different styles of song. There's a country tune. Uh, what's the country tune? Um, uh, there Once Was a Man. There Once Was a Man. There was a, a kind of a calypso number, uh, Hernando's Hideaway. That's right. The big ballad, Hey There. Uh, there was a huge production number, Steam Heat. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were, they were kind of showing off with Pajama Game. Yeah, and Pajama Game in 1954 when it opened on Broadway, May of 1954. And then the very next year, May of 1955, Damn Yankees is on Broadway. 
that's is that unprecedented? I mean, to have such a huge hit pajama game and then 12 months later, a brand new show that is I mean, everybody knows damn Yankees. Everybody knows any musical theater person knows the pajama game in 12 months time. They originated on Broadway. Only Rodgers and Hammerstein had that kind of success. That, that's incredible. And, and it so wasn't nearly tragic. as close together. And Lerner and Lowe came along uh, in uh, their their first big hit was... Uh, My Fair Lady, wasn't My it? My Fair Lady in 56, but they had a, a very nice hit with uh, Brigadoon in 47. But now you've got nine years between these two two musicals. They had Paint Your Wagon in 51, but that wasn't a huge success. But to your point, yeah, two big Tony winners within a year of, of one another uh, in in a decade where Rodgers and Hammerstein were working, Lerner and Lowe, Frank Lesser, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin. Bernstein. Bernstein uh, was, was working in, in the 1950s. Uh, and you had these two, Richard Adler and Jerry Ross, that were set to rival them all. Imagine the musicals that would have appeared in the the musical comedy canon had Jerry Ross lived. I don't know that we'll ever see that again. And what I mean by that is to have two totally different musicals by the same team debut on Broadway within 12 months of each other. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda is famous for saying Hamilton took eight years, took me eight years to kind of get it right. Just to put that into perspective, that's unbelievable to me. And like you said, Rodgers and Hammerstein, of course, did that. But I mean, now you're talking about the greatest duo of all time and Rodgers and Hammerstein. And to think of what we lost with Adler and Ross, many people, I bet, don't even know that their names. Adler and Ross, that means nothing to, to the larger population, I'm guessing. But the Pajama Game and Damn Yankees, 12 months apart on Broadway. Before we kind of get into Candor and Ab and what makes what made them so successful and really their properties debuted 50, 60 years ago in some case and still very popular today. Let's talk about some of the musical partnerships, the famous musical partnerships that maybe didn't work out. I know that the other day you mentioned uh, Rogers and Sondheim. Rogers and Sondheim. Well, after... Um after Oscar Hammerstein passed away in 1960, shortly after the opening of uh, The Sound of Music, uh, Hammerstein, as most theater fans know, was a mentor to Stephen Sondheim and told Stephen Sondheim that if he ever had an opportunity, they would appreciate uh, him working with Richard Rogers at some point. And he told Rogers, uh, Hammerstein told Rogers the same thing. I would like to give, I would like for you to give my man, Stephen Sondheim, first opportunity to be my replacement after I'm gone. And uh, so it wasn't until 1964 that uh, we saw that come to fruition with a show called Do I Hear a Waltz? And uh, uh, Richard Rogers uh, brought in uh, Arthur Lawrence, the famous uh, director from uh, Gypsy and West Side Story, to put this show together, and um, it, it it didn't work out well at all. Uh, Sondheim reports that uh, uh, Richard Rogers 
who was severely alcoholic, his, his drinking was starting to take its toll. Uh, Sondheim reports that Richard Rogers was uh, very kind of pedantic, kind of academic, uh, kind of had an academic approach, um, didn't care for Sondheim's lyrics at all. Uh, this was in 64 after Stephen Sondheim had already started to make his mark as a composer and a lyricist, especially what's funny thing happened on the way to the forum in 1962. But Sondheim agreed to, to do this to honor Oscar Hammerstein's request. Uh, so he, he, he wasn't, uh, his, his heart wasn't in it. Do you think it has anything to do with the generational difference, just the way that they approach the work? I mean, Rogers in his early 60s, Sondheim in his early 30s, what you know about Richard Rogers and what you know about Stephen Sondheim, of course, in hindsight, is that they approach the work very differently. Um, is there anything to be said for that? Or do you think it was just such a such an iconic collaboration between Rogers and Hammerstein that Rogers really couldn't move forward? Was it the sadness of it all? Because he didn't really have any success, any remarkable success after Oscar Hammerstein had died. This is a guy that had great success with Larry Hart, Rogers and Hart. Rodgers and Hammerstein, and then trying to collaborate with Stephen Sondheim, one of the greatest of all time. It yeah, just didn't work out. He, uh, uh, Richard Rogers tried to write with Sheldon Harnock at one point. That's right. Uh, I think, uh, trying to think of some others, there were, uh, did he try to write with Andre Previn? I don't remember. But at any rate, you're, you're right. And I think Stephen Sondheim pointed out that it's because he wasn't hungry anymore. And it should be noted that shortly after Hammerstein died, he did try to go solo. He had one property that he wrote words and music no for. No strings. No strings, which actually earned two Tony Awards. So it was just the collaborations after that. Like you said, he did a little bit of work with Sheldon Harnick, uh, Stephen Sondheim, of course, and it looks like Martin Sharnan as well he tried to collaborate with but really couldn't rekindle the magic of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Well, I think one of the things that really hurt their collaboration for the, uh, Do I Hear a Waltz was when late in the rehearsal process, Richard Rodgers uh, just got up in front of everybody, called Stephen Sondheim's lyric shit. Huh. And uh, I think that pretty much ended the, the partnership right there. And uh, Arthur Lawrence and Richard Rodgers were... Uh, pretty close friends, and uh, so was Lawrence and uh, Sondheim. And after that collaboration, they they barely spoke to one another after that. It's just so interesting because we all know who Richard Rogers is. Couldn't find success with Stephen Sondheim. His work speaks for itself. Couldn't find success with Martin Sharnan, who of course wrote Annie. Couldn't find success with Sheldon Harnick, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof. Those musicals I just mentioned are some of the great musicals of all time. And you have arguably one of the great musical composers of all time in Richard Rodgers that couldn't find success post Hammerstein. And it really speaks to the chemistry of the collaboration. Sometimes if you take a nice bottle of wine, a $50 bottle of wine and another $50 bottle of wine and mix them together, you don't have a $100 bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes mixing two wines doesn't make a better wine. And I think... Uh, My grandma used to mix wine and 7-Up, and that didn't really make for... <laughs> she enjoyed it. 
Well, another terrible partnership was when uh, Alan J. Lerner and Fritz Lowe, uh, they broke up after uh, Camelot in uh, 1960. They did come back together briefly uh, to write... um, uh, I think it was The Little Prince. It was a musical film. Yes, the, uh, the score for The Little Prince. And they didn't do anything after that, partly because uh, Fritz Lowe wasn't hungry anymore. Uh, he was making plenty of money after uh, from royalties from My Fair Lady. Uh, also, Alan J. Lerner was pretty egotistical. And uh, uh, they... They got along professionally, and they were friends for a long time, but especially towards the end, uh, Fritz Lowe kind of had enough of, of Alan J. Lerner's ego. Uh, he had been married, like, I think once he met a woman, he wound up marrying her. He was married many times, got into financial trouble with uh, back payments on alimony, got in trouble with the IRS uh, on back taxes. Uh, but Alan J. Lerner wound up partnering in the early 70s with Leonard Bernstein. Oh, really? To write a musical called 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yes, I have heard of that. It lasted about seven performances on Broadway and wound up being withdrawn by uh, the Bernstein estate later because it it, it was a very famous flop. What does that mean, withdrawn? Is that like an annulment, like it never happened? Yeah, like it never happened. You can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't find it. it. You can't put the show up there. You can't find it anywhere. There's a concert There's a concert of it that's available, not of the show, but a, a, a concert of the, of the music, some of the music. The, the critics of the day praised Bernstein's music, and they really panned uh, Alan J. Lerner's book and, and lyrics. Well, that brings us to Kandra and Ebb, of course, the, the longest writing partnership of all time. The first show was called... Uh, Floor Act- of the Red Menace. Floor of the Red Menace with uh, Liza Minnelli in 1965. They came together. They were introduced by a uh, uh, common business associate in 1964. And when they f- first met and shook hands and were getting to know each other, they decided to write a test song. It was called a mock title song to see how their chemistry would play out, to see how, how it would work. And uh, they were pretty happy with that result and how uh, uh, Prince uh, asked him to write uh, uh, Floor of the Red Menace in 1965 with the uh, Liza Minnelli, which made a star out of her. They became lifelong fans of Liza Minnelli and vice versa over the years. Cheetah Rivera was another uh, woman in the lives of, of Kander and Ebb over the years. You think about Kander and Ebb, a lot of people don't know maybe Flora the Red Menace, but of course their next collaboration in 1966 was Cabaret, one of the great musicals of all time, directed by Harold Prince, the film version famously directed by Bob Fosse. And then as you look down at their work over their 45, near 50-year collaborative history, you've got some of the greatest musicals of all time. Cabaret, of course, Chicago, of course, Kiss of the Spider Woman really was something new on Broadway at that time. Even Steel Pier, some great songs in Steel Pier, Curtains, which was their last, I think, big hit, 
you mentioned the Scottsboro boys, but I think Curtains is a little bit more well-known than that. What do you attribute the longevity to? I mean, these guys just got along. I mean, famously, we've spoken about Rogers and Hammerstein never worked in the same room together. Lerner and Lowe, Alan J. Lerner was kind of an egotistical guy. Their partnership was short-lived comparatively. What do you attribute 50 years of musical collaborations to? In Curtains, Alan, uh, John Kander wrote a song, which not very many people know, was dedicated to his longtime partner, uh, Fred Ebb, and it's called I Miss My Friend. Hmm. I think they were genuinely loved each other. Uh, they were wonderful friends. And I think uh, in this situation, uh, that was one of the keys of their partnership. And also, the, I think that they approached the work a little differently. Uh, John Kander uh, grew up with Kansas City Jazz, grew up in Kansas City. Uh, you can hear a certain Dixieland flavor, a certain jazz flavor in a lot of his music, especially in cabaret and uh, in Chicago as well. And uh, he, uh, John Kander had a kind of a sophisticated, more symphonic uh, bent to writing music while Fred Ebb tended to be more sentimental and more, more earthy. So you had a, a certain sophistication in the music but a certain down-to-earthness in the lyrics that I think was a, a, a wonderful balance. That's my opinion. You know, many people may not know their most famous song. If I were to ask you, what's Kander and Ebb's most famous song? Maybe you'd say Cabaret. Maybe you'd pick out something from Chicago. But the tune that they wrote that transcends even musical theater is... <laughs> yeah. New York, New York. Frank Sinatra's signature piece, huh? That's that's right. Uh, from the Martin Scorsese film, New York, New York. Really a song that I think everyone in the world is familiar with that tune. They play it after New York Yankees games. And I read that when they worked together, and confirm or deny this if you know, that Fred Ebb would always just say, give me a vamp. Give me a vamp and I'll be able to go from there. And if you think about some of their most famous songs, New York, New York starts, starts with off a vamp. with an iconic vamp. Cabaret. Um, all that jazz starts off with an iconic vamp. And really, I'd be hard pressed to think of another, uh, you know, songwriting team that really embraced and made the vamp such uh, an anchor in their music. So when you think about songwriting teams and who else stands out to you beyond Lerner and Lowe, Kander and Ebb, Rogers and Hammerstein, Adler and Ross? If you were to say, let's rank the top five songwriting, musical songwriting teams of all time, how would you rank them? Well, you'd have to put, you'd have to put uh, Rogers and Hammerstein at the top because they reinvented the, the American musical, the, the formula that Actually, Oscar Hammerstein gets more credit for theatrically uh, infusing the, the modern musical with its, with its formula, uh, its way of playing out its, uh, its, its bones, its skeleton. Uh, they, they, they created that 
and again, more Oscar Hammerstein's work than Roger's humble melodies. Next, I, I would have to go with uh, Lerner and Lowe. They're the most well-known, although some, uh, if you ask some junior high school kid today, he's likely to think that's an accounting firm. <laughs> Uh, Listen, they have a handful of the greatest musicals of yes. all time. Camelot, My Fair Lady, alone. Uh, they have Brigadoon. They have uh, Gigi the Gigi. movie. And uh, Paint Your Wagon. Uh, after that, uh, I don't know, the, uh, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnack. Uh, Jerry Bach uh, uh, is, is gone. Sheldon Harnack's still alive. He's 95 years old, Fiddler on the Roof. A lot of people don't know uh, the other shows that they wrote, but Fiorello about uh, Mayor uh, Fiorello LaGuardia, uh, the mayor of New York in the 1940s, uh, actually, I think it's the only time it tied for best musical on Broadway with, uh, was it The Sound of Music? Yeah, won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, also, She Loves Me. Uh, they wrote that right after Fiddler on the Roof, which was based on the old Jimmy Stewart movie, The Shop Around the Corner. They had another show uh, that um, has been brought back a couple of times that uh, is getting a, a, a couple of new hearings called The Apple Tree. Sure. And they also wrote a show which in the early 70s, no, late 60s, called The Rothschilds which starred a then-unknown Hal Linden who went on to be Barney Miller. Who went on to be star of shows at the New Theater Restaurant yeah. in Overland Park, Kansas. Yeah. Well, God bless. I mean, he's doing better than us. Yeah. Uh, Do you think Bach and Harnick, certainly they're not above Kander and Ebb? No. So we've got, if in, this is in no particular order, but we've got Roger and Hammerstein. We've got Lerner and Lowe. We've got Kander and Ebb. I think it's safe to say those are probably... The top three. Arguable. Yes. But I think it's safe. I would safe. agree with that. If you've got two more spots, for, just for argument's sake, you've got Harnick and Bach in there. Do you think they supersede Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice? You think about Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, obviously we've got Joseph, Avita. That might be enough. Yeah. Who, who else? JC Superstar. Superstar. I mean, sheesh. Those are Superstar and Avita. I, I, would put the, I would put those two up at the top of the list. Do the Gershwins get in there? Tough. I mean, George Gershwin, another one who died at what, 29? 39. 39? Good Lord. Yeah. And uh, Ira Gershwin collaborated with a variety of, uh, including Kurt Weill, uh, until he passed, what, in the early 90s, Ira Gershwin? So probably not enough breadth of material the two of them George and Ira to break into the top five well and so and their shows aren't brought back because they're so hopelessly dated their shows from the 1920s Porgy and Bess is probably the only show of theirs that uh, sure uh, comes back around nice work if you can get it but these are shows that are kind of created posthumously for them yes yeah I'm thinking I'm thinking right now of Charles Strauss and Lee Adams who wrote uh, Bye Bye Birdie in 62 uh, they uh, they they don't have a huge body of work, but uh, by the way, little sidebar trivia: they wrote uh, "Those Were the Days," the theme theme song for All in the Family. Really, <laughs> Charles Strauss and Lee Adams. <laughs> you got to pay the mortgage somehow. 
That will lead us into another episode where we talk about the non-musical teams. Cole Porter wrote alone, Stephen Sondheim, for the most part, wrote alone, had some early work with Leonard Bernstein, Julie Stein. Uh, Frank Lesser wrote music and lyrics. I mean, that's a pretty good triumvirate right there. Yeah, and another interesting subject, I think, is why some of these teams break up. I mean, Charles Strauss and Lee Adams parted ways. Charles Strauss wound up uh, collaborating with a whole list of other composers, uh, and his biggest hit was not with Lee Adams. It was with Martin Sharna with Annie. Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnock, uh, they, they broke up before Jerry Bach passed. And uh, so sometimes the magic dissipates into thin air. You know, I, I would be interested in, in, in running a poll, like we talked about Adler and Ross earlier, only two musicals, but Pajama Game and Damn Yankees. I, put them at the, I would put them up there on that list, even though they only had two musicals. I think they would definitely be in a top 10 list based on those two musicals alone. You know, I wonder, it's such an interesting philosophical or psychological debate you know, working alone is lonely. I always think back about Into the Woods and the song Your Fault, the famous uh, quartet, you know, late in the play, and how crazy it must have been to write that and how crazy it must have been to learn that. I doubt two people could write a song like that. I think that's the sort of song, and there's a lot of examples in the song. That's a great point. Uh, canon that... that you, you could only write by yourself. You couldn't possibly collaborate with someone and agree on all the subtleties and all the twists and turns that a song like that takes. And you've often talked about how Sondheim is such a disciple of math, arithmetic, and really a song like that. And lots of his compositions are almost mathematical. You couldn't, it would take you a lifetime to explain kind of the algorithm in terms of creating a, a musical piece such as that when you're working collaboration generally speaking you're working with give me a vamp give me the chord structure give me the formula and you know I'll fit into that but with some of these guys Sondheim specifically even Cole Porter whose rhyme scheme was so intricate I mean you almost have to work alone that's why their voices are so succinct Cole Porter uh, he would tend to tell different people, different things about a songwriting technique. As people ask about it a lot, and he thought people that asked questions like that were boors, but what's been pieced together over the years that he tended to start with, with the lyrics and he would say the lyrics to himself out loud and find the melody that way. And he would tend to start kind of in the middle in the middle of a song, and then write the beginning and the end later, beginning with the idea of the song. So that way you don't have to worry about a collaborator or a songwriting partner. Uh, Richard Adler said in an interview later concerning his collaboration with Jerry Ross and writing the pajama game and damn Yankees that they both had an agreement that if one person didn't like it, it was out. Didn't matter if... The other guy loved it. If one of the partners was not happy with it, they agreed it was out and, and they would move on. And uh, I, I think one of the most famous stories about that is when uh, Harold Arlen, along with Yip Harburg, wrote Over the Rainbow for uh, 
uh, for uh, Wizard, the Wizard of, Oz. of Oz. Harold Arlen came up with a melody in a flash. He said later that he felt like God gave it to him because he had been worrying about it for weeks. Yip Harper didn't like it. He wrote the lyrics to it, but he didn't like the song. And they were at an impasse, and they were thinking of disposing of the song and starting over. But Harold Arlen just knew that this was the right melody. And they agreed, they both agreed to go to an arbiter who would decide. And you know who that arbiter was? Ira Gershwin, George Gershwin's brother. And they played and sang the song for Ira Gershwin at his home in Los Angeles. And Ira Gershwin started to weep. And they knew they had their answer. They had to get a third party involved. The duet, the partnership wasn't enough. Well, I'll tell you what, George. Uh, this would be a pretty lonely podcast if it was just me. So I appreciate the conversation across the <laughs> table. Uh, you know, at the end of every episode of the Peanut Gallery here, we like to share a story from the Peanut Gallery. I think it's my turn. This may or may not qualify, but we're going to use it nonetheless. I was doing a performance of a 1960s review, so a collection of 1960s folk songs and the like, and we were about two or three songs away from intermission. And we were singing, I believe it was uh, Tumbling Tumbleweeds. The hear Suck. them tumbling down. That's about how Son, it went. Sons of the Pioneers. That's right. And there was a, a, a group of three people in the very front row. One woman seemed like she was totally asleep, which wasn't uncommon. <laughs> it's not uncommon. <laughs> In some of these reviews, but God in bless. The front row to be asleep. God bless them. They pay thirty-five dollars to take a nap. How can you blame them? But she seemed to be asleep, and then I noticed that the person next to her was, was seemingly trying to wave me down, and so I turned to the 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 pianist, who happened to also be the the owner of the theater, and I said, "We got to stop." And so we stopped, and this woman. Uh, she was unconscious. And so we pulled her out. You know, I was, is there a doctor in the house? It was that moment. Is there a doctor in the house? We got the whole cast off stage. We got this lady onto the floor, started moving chairs. Everyone's very concerned, took the intermission early. Um, it was a very long intermission in this case. The ambulance showed up and everything to take this woman out. This woman regained consciousness and refused to leave the performance. She insisted on staying and watching the second act of the show. And it's like, honey, you are you okay? I mean, this is this is a 1960s review. God bless. Let's let's get you to the hospital. But anyhow, she refused to leave. And, you know, you can't force anybody to do anything against their will. So she uh, enjoyed the rest of the performance. <laughs> we picked up after intermission. Right where we, the peanut gallery comes through again. God bless this lady. She was all right refused to leave she was so enthralled with the production especially I think that's a testament to your performance well you know tumble and tumbleweeds yes that uh, that gets in, that's an old gene autry song for Roy the kids. rogers was in uh, the, the sons of the pioneers back in those days you know maybe we'll close this episode out with tumble and tumbleweeds i'll see if we can get the rights for that probably cost us 99 cents all right well thanks again for listening to this episode of the peanut gallery until next time my name is tim scott george harder
Tumbling tongue.